There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets which Moses placed there at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Anybody want to raise their hand and say, wait a minute? Yeah, what other items were in there? Were supposed to be in there. Yeah, there was supposed to be a pot of an omer of manna, and there was supposed to be Aaron's staff. Um, I made the Ark of the Covenant for Holy Week last year, because, and partly because I wanted to see with my own eyes how big the staff could have been, because I'm not great at math, but I can at least build a replica and then look. How long would Aaron's staff have been if the Ark of the Covenant is six feet long, five feet long? You know, because there's a diagonal there you're dealing with. So it could have been actually quite a long staff laid in there diagonally. Um, and then the Ten Commandments and then the pot of, of manna. Um, however, had the ark ever been out of the hands of the Israelites? When did that happen? It was. Uh, they lost it in battle to the Philistines in um, 1 Samuel 6. So before David's time, uh, Eli, the, the high priest Eli had two sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. They had taken the ark into battle against the Philistines, lost. They got killed. That's when Eli fell over backward on his stool and broke his neck and died. And Samuel uh, 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 was now um, uh, beginning his career as a prophet to the Lord. Um, uh, just a little side note here. Did you know that Samuel the prophet was descended from Korah? Korah, the guy who rebelled against Moses and all of his family were killed. But then we're told later that not all of his children died. And there are two interesting things there because one group of those descendants form a musical group called the Sons of Korah. Um, and they write several of the Psalms. And their psalms tend to praise God for his mercy. You've got a family connection there. And then we're told that Samuel himself was from that family line, of, descended from Korah. So it's a curiosity there. But with regard to, to this, um, could the Philistines have maybe opened the pot of manna and broken it? What is this? And thrown it away. And I think if that had happened, would it make sense that God had, would just have allowed the manna to rot then? You know, it's gone. What's, what's done is done. It's gone. And what would they have done with a stick? The, the ignorant Philistines. Probably broken it or thrown it away. Or this is, you know, or Goliath's brother used it as a toothpick. Or, I don't, I don't know, but whatever it was. So, uh, uh, but all that was left now was the Ark of the Covenant. And we're not told what happened to the other things. They, could they have been there and the guy just didn't write it down? I think it's more likely that they had gotten taken out by somebody who didn't know what they were doing. Nothing. nothing except, yeah, it's pretty precise. Um, but I would like to talk about this business of the poles sticking out. Do you mind if we just, just look at this? So uh, this is my uh, uh, kind of drawing of the poles in the 30-foot space of the Holy of Holies. That thing on the bottom, the bumpy thing, is what? It's the curtain, okay? And um, in this model, 
the poles are facing north to south because the curtain was on the east side. So east is down. Understand? And then when the, when the high priest would go in on the, on, on the, the Day of Atonement, which, by the way, is the day after the Feast of Tabernacles, so it's like yesterday, you know, he goes in for this special ceremony. He would go behind the curtain, and the curtain, we're not told that the curtain had any break in it. It was a solid curtain. So how do you get behind it? You've got to do an end run, I think. I don't, I don't think under. I think with dignity, you'd go to the side and go around. You know, I, I can't quite see the high priest crawling under. Um, but I think, or, or even lifting it, because it was pretty heavy. It was, you know, it was the width of a man's hand. It's a huge, incredibly heavy piece of fabric. Heavier, really, almost than a wall except that it does, would move a little bit. And it wasn't on rods or anything. It was just attached above. And I really kind of think maybe it was just doubled and just hung. But, um, but the, to get around it, though, you do like you do with most people's shower curtains. Don't they work? So you've got to go left or right, you know, and you go around and, and so forth. And so if he did that, could, and he went in, could somebody have seen the poles as they stuck out? You know, they, they weren't supposed to look, but the writer does say, but you could. Just saying you could. You know, that kind of thing. Um, the other possibility is that it is that they were facing east to west. And that for some reason they bumped out the front of the curtain. You know, like a little kid playing hide and seek behind the curtains in the living room. And apart from the giggling... You know, you can kind of see the outline of the kid in the, in the, in the curtain and so forth. And that, that's what they did. The, the, the problem I have with that, which, by the way, is the official uh, accepted version that I find written in the Talmud and the Mishnah. I did some reading in there this morning uh, in my office. And um, is that this could have been seen from the outside. You know, if you could, you could look through and see the bumps. So if that's what they meant, then you could see it from the outside through the, through the main doors out, outside the portico. So that, that would have been visible to anybody. So I, think it was, so I think it was this way, side to side. So that only really if you were inside could you see it. And by the way, you weren't supposed to be in there when the high priest went in there. Does anybody know uh, that they, they had a contingency? This is a, a kind of a legend. Because the question is then, well, what if the high priest dies when he's in there? You know, you're going to go in after him? I'm not going to go in after him, you know. You know uh, anybody know what they did? The legend is that he went in there with a rope tied around his leg. So they would pull him from under, you know, <laughs> pull him back out of there. That's just a legend, but the, um, it's amazing how uh, the, uh, the, uh, the ancient Jews... Um, who didn't comprehend so many things, did think about some practical things and thought in a way that I wouldn't have come up with, but fascinating. Well, we're in Second Chronicles, still in chapter 5. This is verse 11 and following. The priests who have just put in the Ark of the Covenant now, they came out from the holy place. All the priests who were present had consecrated themselves. They did not remain separated by their divisions, 
So they were just all there jumbled. Everybody, every, all hands on deck, right? Wasn't that Pastor Sharp's theme this weekend? Um, the Levitical musicians, the divisions of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, including their sons and their relatives, were standing east of the altar. East means in front of, toward the sun. They were clothed in fine linen and had their cymbals, harps, and lyres with them. With them were also 120 priests who blew trumpets. That's a lot of trumpet noise. Um, isn't that a line from the Grinch? All the noise, 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 noise. The trumpeters and the singers joined together as one to praise and give thanks to the Lord as they raised their voices to praise the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other musical instruments. They sang, truly he is good because his mercy endures forever. Today, what's the primary role of church musicians? I'm going to give you, oh, it's on the bottom of the page, three, three possibles. Is it mostly to entertain, mostly to edify or build up, or mostly to lead the congregation in making music? It's kind of B and C, isn't it? Sometimes it's edify, sometimes it's lead. If the handbells are playing, is that to lead the congregation? No, it's more, more to edify, right? Yeah. If the choir sings by itself, that's to edify. But if the musician, like the organist or the contemporary folks are leading our singing, then that's to lead the congregation in making music. However, the theory behind, I'm going to call, I'm going to make a distinction here. The theory behind what I'll call reformed contemporary music really rejects the idea of congregational participation in music. In the reformed concept of contemporary music, it's to entertain. Um, and there is a devaluation and a rejection of the liturgy that happens in reformed contemporary music, where there's a, a, it's, it's as if the liturgy cannot be understood. Therefore, you know, by, by, by somebody said, I don't understand the liturgy, therefore let's never do it ever again. You know, rather than, I wonder what the liturgy means, which would have been a good question to ask. Um, uh, incidentally, uh, with regard to the liturgy, we have a plan. We've, Pastor Scharf and I have spoken with Pastor Ailhoffen and the rest of the staff. What we would like to do after the new hymnal is in the pew, which is a ways down the road here, but next, probably next summer, um, when, it, in, when it's entirely in the pew, um, is to go through the liturgy um, over the course of my 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 uh, mind says three or four weeks, where there will be like a liturgical moment, and we'll explain a portion of the liturgy. What are we doing here, and why, and what's the history of it, and what scripture is being used, and then we'll do that together, and then move on with the service. Then the following week we'll take the next piece and do that and move on and. To, to, because one thing I can tell you about the new hymnal now that I've seen it is that there are no new liturgies that we at St. Paul's have never seen before. So we've, we've seen and used all of them that are in the, in the hymnal now, the primary liturgies. So, but we've had a couple of extras for a while at St. Paul's and in some of them almost for 20 years. 
Yeah. Well, there, there's also the idea of not burdening the congregation with an outside thing too often. So I'm thinking we do it once and then like we wait a while, you know, and, and do it again. Possibly yearly or every other yearly might, might be appropriate. We also have the issue of, um, uh, not to get too far afield, but that, that's okay. Um, schedule says we don't have to finish chapter 6 till next week. So, um, Is that, um, that, I don't know whether you remember this, but before 1993, there was no such thing as end times. Do you, do you remember that? That we didn't have an end times before 93. So it's not that old. Um, that was an invention that came in with the new hymnal, with the red hymnal, was that four weeks would be spent on end times between Reformation and the Sunday up to Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, there, there's, a, there's a kind of a precedent for that, but we never had done it. Um, there was always a Thanksgiving festival and a Reformation festival, but these other things. And uh, what, what we have at St. Paul's is a bit of a problem because about four years ago, we came up with something new to do at Saints Triumphant. So we have a reading, a public reading of the, of the saints from our fellowship, from our midst, the people who have passed away that year, and family members go up and put flowers in a cross on Saints Triumphant Sunday. Well, we've lost Saints Triumphant. It's not in the calendar anymore, so what do we do? And uh, we've talked about this and what we think we would like to do, because there is still uh, Christ the King Sunday built in as the last Sunday of the church year before Advent starts. So it's around Thanksgiving time, is that we will probably keep saints triumphant. You know, I don't know if we're going to kind of retrofit all of end times back in. Like, I don't want to give it up. Uh, or I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do. But we will involve Pastor Ailhoffen with that after he's been here for a year and we'll figure it out. But, you know, that's part of the issue. The, with the way that the new hymnal was introduced was like, you know, I've got a big secret. It's coming. You should promote this. But I'm not going to tell you what's in it. And then all of a sudden now we have it and we see, oh, this is missing and this is missing. And, and so now what do we do? Well, we have to go back now and scramble a little bit because we've been promoting it. But we didn't know what I, I tried to make this clear to everybody. Every time anybody asked me, I haven't seen it. I really don't know what's in it. Therefore, I can't tell you what we're going to do and when. And this is an example of this whole season of the church here now that is, uh, is gone. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Oh, we certainly do. We certainly do. But there's another side to that. There is, there's one other side. And that is in the, in the, in the old pericope, which we you know, changed to make room for those four weeks is that there used to be texts which got removed for the sake of the end time season, which were never put back in anywhere. So there are gospel lessons and epistle lessons that just have never been read, you know, since those days because they didn't get, you know, so there is, there, there is another side to that. And where do we put those things? Yes, but... To leave a part of scripture out 
permanently is, you know, and never get to it is, especially if it's a gospel lesson, you know. Right, but I'm, 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 I'm just saying it's nice to put those things back in sometimes, which is one reason why uh, I told Pastor Ailhoffen, I, I, I confessed to him when he was asking me how rigid are we about things, I told him, well, when I'm choosing the 18 sermons I get every year, because that's a year divided by three, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of jealous of those 18 moments, because that's all I get, you know. And uh, however, I allow myself four of them to be what are called free texts. So I, I don't just go with the pericope on those weeks, although it is good to stick with the pericope as much as we can because it's, uh, there, there are examples again and again in recent history even of when churches begin to get away from the pericope, they begin to get onto topical preaching and they begin to get on a soapbox and they don't get off of it. And, there, and, and, and a church that gets away from that will get away from book of the Bible, Bible class teaching. Um, and uh, we have a, there's nothing wrong with doing topical classes. But if you don't balance them with a book of the Bible, then you get portions of scripture that never get studied by people. And that, I think, is a mistake as well. Um, so, all right, let's go on. Verse 13b and 14. Then the sanctuary of the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. Does that sound familiar? When had that happened earlier? When the sanctuary was filled with a cloud. With Moses and the tabernacle. Yeah, with Moses and the tabernacle. The same thing had happened when they dedicated it. Um, So the priests were not able to take their positions to minister because of the presence of the cloud, because the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now, if you turn to page two of your handout, um, I want to point something out. So this, the, the, this, this Anan Arafel, the, 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 the heavy, thick cloud, um, the glory of the Lord filled the temple just as it had in the days of Moses and Aaron. Um, First of all, why is this, even though the the priests were not allowed to do their work, why is this a gospel sign for the people? A sign of God's grace and blessing and forgiveness. First of all, the basics of the glory of the Lord in this big cloud is it showed God's presence. So God blesses the temple with his presence, just as he had blessed the tabernacle with his presence. Um... And then that will point ahead uh, ultimately to Christ. But let's get to the, to the second temple. Because you have tabernacle, right? Then you have Solomon, which is first temple. Then you have Zerubbabel, I'm going to say slash Haggai, which is the second temple, the one that's still there when Jesus comes. Although, is it? Because Herod, you know, rebuilt that temple. And if somebody came along and rebuilt my house... What did they probably do with my house first? They probably tore it down. So what did Herod the Great do with that second temple of Zerubbabel, that little rinky-dink temple? I think he probably took it down. Yeah, I think he destroyed it. Um, And then he built up this great thing. However, he wanted people to refer to it as Herod's temple, and no one ever does. 
It's always still referred to as the second temple or Zerubbabel's temple, even though maybe not one stone of Zerubbabel's temple was really left standing. That was, it was all Herod, really. But there is a little bit that might, that might go to Zerubbabel, but not much. It, but, and that, I think that probably drove Herod crazy. He wanted to be the builder, like Solomon, the builder of the temple. And the people said, oh, that's a nice new you know, front, but it's still the second temple. You know, it's not the third. You don't get to tear it down and build it up again and claim that it, you're the builder. You know, so. Uh, but if the glory of the Lord did not appear when Zerubbabel built the temple in Haggai's time, it didn't. They built it and the people wept. But God told Haggai, I will fill this house with glory. When did that happen? Yeah, that second temple. When did God fill that with his glory? It's when Jesus Christ came and walked the hallways and taught in there and then got arrested, put on trial, rejected by the priests. The high priest Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die than the whole nation? I mean, what just happened there? That's the high priest essentially laying his hands on the head of the sacrifice and saying, this one dies in place of everybody else. That's the Day of Atonement. All, all the, the Day of Atonement and Passover and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of First Fruit, it's all wrapped up in Christ's one sacrifice. All of those things are combined into that one thing. Um, and, uh, and that's something that uh, uh, modern Israel completely rejects and doesn't understand. You know, but you ask, when did the glory fill the temple as God promised to Haggai? Because th that temple's gone now. The Romans really did destroy it. So when did that happen? God promised he would fill that temple Fill it with his glory. It's the glory of Christ. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.